Hi, everybody, and welcome to Import This, a podcast for humans. This is episode, I have no idea, I think episode nine uh, or eight, probably nine. And uh, today we are joined with the fantastic Armin Ronecker, who used to be a big Python hero of mine and now is a good Python friend. And uh, he's the creator of the Flask framework. That's what his claim to fame is, which was originally known as Denied. Uh, it was an April Fool's joke, so he's the greatest troll of the internet that turned out to be one of the greatest blessings in the Python community. I like to think of requests as kind of the antithesis to Flask. I took a lot of design inspiration and documentation inspiration from Flask, uh, as well as uh, I wanted to have as many GitHub stars as Flask. And uh, we're usually in pretty close competition. I don't know what we're at right now, but we're usually really close to each other. So I was successful in that. So thank you very much, Armin, for being a good inspiration for me and being a good friend. Uh, I appreciate that. And welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And uh, Alex is not here today because he is very apparently very busy uh, with the holidays. He's doing his holiday shopping and he's just overwhelmed uh, trying to get all the Peep all the core PyPy committers, just the perfect gift. And those people are really hard to shop for. So, <laughs> so uh, I did talk to him recently, and uh, he actually is interested in coming on the show soon. So uh, that would be a good episode. So everyone go hassle Alex Gainer, and uh, we'll see why we can get him on. So, Armin, uh, let me see. I'm just going to go off of memory here. Um, you made Flask, which was denied originally. Uh, which was hilarious, and Flask has grown into something probably much larger than you ever wanted it to be. Um, uh, if you're ever going to build a web frame, uh, build a, a web application in Python, your only three options really are Pyramid, Flask, or Django. And in reality, 90% of the time it's either Flask or Django. And in my reality, it's 90% of the time it's Flask. Uh, which is fantastic. And I want to thank you very much for building that tool. It's very powerful. And uh, I love Wurgzug is is also another part of that tool chain, which is a little over my head. But uh, I always love that I can get as deep as I want into it when I need to. So it's, it's, it's both a great design and a horrible design because it makes it a little, you know, if you're a Flask user, it's a little hard to to wrap your head around all the Wurzig primitives and stuff, but once you understand what's going on, I think it's like the most powerful design. You know, it's very, it's kind of like SQL Alchemy. Like SQL Alchemy is one of the most powerful libraries around, but at the same time, it's one of the hardest to grok. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think there's one one commonality between them, which is that it's, uh, it's like an onion. There's many layers. Yes. You can many always layers. go a little bit deeper. Oh. Request has many layers as well, but yeah, they're but not you don't nearly them. I as... think that's the big difference. Like the layers in yes. my libraries are always there. And they always have a reason. Uh, and they're never hidden. And if I request the layers are there, but yeah, well tucked I, away. I think the, the hardest part for that is for documentation. I don't think it's for usability. I think for usability, it's very easy, but it becomes difficult to document cross-library li- cross stuff at that point. Yeah. Um, and, it's also- and you also created the Jinja 2 templating language, which is uh, the best templating language in Python or perhaps the world. I don't know, but uh, is that a bold claim? I don't know. I think it's pretty. I mean, it's, it's not the best terrible. HTML. 
it's the best HTML templating language in Python. Um, I've tried using it for just regular stuff, like like generating uh, XML or generating like text files, and it it was a little hard to use it directly. I've only really been successful in using it with Flask, because um, Flask does a lot of the hard work for you. You mean like configuring stuff? Yes, it's very configurable. Very, very configurable. Yeah, it's, and it's a little, yeah, it's again a little over my head. <laughs> yeah, it definitely doesn't have, um, it doesn't have a, like a, a simple API, I would say, because it was never really made for that. The assumption was always that someone embeds it in a framework. Um, so, yeah. so just like a one off kind of thing, you can't do it like from string input template. Something like this doesn't do it. Yes, exactly. So, is it? Would you recommend people use it for non-HTML templating? Is it yeah, designed I for mean, that, or is it that one of the? I mean, that's that's a, almost a philosophical question. But um, one of the original thoughts behind Ginger was that you can actually change the syntax of it, which at the mm-hmm. time, oh really? Which at the time was a really good idea. Um, but there's one thing that kind of really goes against this. So the reason why you could change the syntax was that. Sometimes you wanted to do templating in an environment where curly brackets have use, and then it gets yes. annoying. So, for instance, it came up uh, like LaTeX and stuff like this. So you can actually change the limiters. Um, but then the other part of it is that obviously you have a text editor, and text editor doesn't do like variable syntax <laughs> and stuff like this. So it's like it's it's not exactly the most uh, like I wouldn't make that feature again probably. So you, you learn. Uh, I, f- I, f- I found a new trick in Sublime Text where I have the Jinja 2 extensions installed and it recommends, it automatically activates if you don't name your Flask templates.html, but you name them .j2.html, yeah. I think. And so that's the new pattern I use in my Flask applications. But so it, and that makes things a lot easier. So I, th- I would still recommend Jinja as a templating engine for, for lots of things. Like that, I like it. It's, I think it's... It's not the worst I made. You like it. Yeah, I mean, like... Well, of course I, you like the it. The thing is, like, I know lots of things that I wouldn't do again. Like, the, the bugs in it, which, like, so many things I wouldn't do again. But it's not broken enough that I can... And does it? And it does work on Python 3, right? Yeah. I remember you told me a story about, like, four years ago, when back when we were, like, early porting Python, supporting things for Python 3, like, requests was adding Python 3 support, and... Uh, you told me that the Python three version of Jinja was broken for years and no one noticed. Well, it wasn't years, but it was for quite some time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, it shipped with a broken setup with PyFile, and clearly nobody noticed. Um, so your new project that I actually have never used um, personally. I when I build command line applications, I just use I keep them as simple as possible, and I like to use the project docopt. Uh, which is my favorite uh, command line argument parser, uh, parser by far. Uh, I'm, sh- are you, I'm sure you're familiar with it. But for our listeners, docopt is incredible. What it does is, uh, you know when you type like dash dash help on a command line and it gives you this like output that's in a certain format? That turns out to be an ANSI standard of how that output is is generated. And so you just write the string for the output and it writes all the parsing for you. Uh, and I really like that for my really simple style, um, non-complex command line applications. And and Armin here has written something called Click, which I believe is for more robust, complex command line applications. Is that correct? Yeah. 
So the thing is, um, and then I go to the homepage, I see it, I see, I see like the example, and it's all command line and parser and parsing stuff. But it does way more than that, right? So there's one huge difference between click and talk opt. I mean that bunch. Um, but the biggest one is that docop stops at parsing arguments. Yes. Whereas click goes into handling types and all that sort of stuff or composable programs. So one of the things yes. with click is that you have um, you, you decorate a function, it becomes a command object, and then you can start nesting them. Um, which is very nice because you can, for instance, have like, oh, now I want to have like, you want to build something like Git where you have the subcommands and they kind of yes. work that way. Yes, um, that's that's where docop kind of falls over on itself. Um, and but is does click offer anything like a yes no prompts or anything like that yeah. for command line applications? Yeah. It, it does that stuff too. It it does progress bars and like getting terminal sizes and colors and. I wrote a, a library similar to it called Clint uh, a long time ago when I was building a lot of command line applications. I never documented it. I just built it for myself. And uh, it got a, got a big following. Um, I use it for my legit project. And uh, it does it encapsulates a lot of the same functionality. It has colors. Uh, and it, does, it has like a columnizer. And it has an English joiner, which I really like. So you can, do, you can give it a string of words, and it'll properly join them in English with commas, the Oxford comma, and the and. Uh, I think that that was really nice to add in there. Maybe I'll add that to Click. <laughs> well, there are more languages. Than that. That's the other thing that Click, theoretically, like practically it doesn't do it, but theoretically, one of the better setups um, for command line applications is when you separate... <clears throat> the text from the help text. So with docopt, since parsing happens as part of your usage text, it means that yes. internationalization is hard. Um, yes. Um, so theoretically, click is better for that. But practically, I didn't write support for that. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think from a, pra- from a pragmatic perspective, expecting command line tools to be in English is totally acceptable. Because Linux, I, Linux, I, I is, Linux is in English. Oh, yeah. Linux is unfortunately not English at all. The moment you switch, oh. the moment you switch the language to French, everything speaks French to you. Really? Yeah, it's very translated. I've never, uh, I've never tried that. I've never had that experience. Yeah, I mean, uh, like, are the man pages written in French too? Yeah, pretty much everything. Like, there's an enormous. Wow. That's that's how I got interested in in, in, in Unicode and internalization was that I I used to <clears throat> basically used to program. Ooh, uh, there's a topic that we should talk about. Python three. No, no, hold on. And hold internationalization. On. I, need to, I need to talk about. First I know after after this, which is that. Yes, you are obsessed with the ports of Unicode. Things, I used to do. Uh, I basically used to run with friends and colleagues, uh, the German Ubuntu community. Uh, when Ubuntu came out, that was like 2004. Did you say Drupal? No, no, Ubuntu. Ubuntu, okay. Um, Ubuntu. I don't know how you pronounce it. German is called Ubuntu. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, Ubuntu. <laughs> we used to run this, this, this community website. Um, and I was a shitty PHP programmer at the time. Um, and I slowly converted things into Python there. So we started with PHPDB and we converted more and more things. And one of the 
earliest. So it was a forum. It was an online community. It was a forum, a wiki, uh, a planet aggregator. If you still know what those things this is are. All, was this the Poco site or was it something else? So Poco eventually became related to that. So we wanted to we wanted to make a new forum software and it was supposed to be called Poco. Um, we, Nowadays you would just use Discourse or something like that probably. Yeah, so we actually wrote a custom software but it used Chango. Uh, yeah, it used Chango at the time. Um, anyways, like that's how I learned Python through this website. But before I even got to proper programming, I started to translate things for Ubuntu with the Launchpad software to German, obviously. Um, oh. But you used to be able to do that. And so that's how I got a little bit of exposure to, uh, to translation software and, and all that sort of stuff. And that's also how I got interested in Unicode. Because so, and you, from what I understand, you have some kind of deep, profound insight into Unicode that everyone else lacks. Um, and I've, I'm just beginning to experience a little bit of this because I am on Heroku. The next version of Python that comes out is 2.7.13, which comes out, I think, on the, four, the 17th or something like that. And uh, it'll be the first one that's built with UCS4 on by default because uh, by default Python builds with UCS2, which yeah. is horrible. Well, see, that's uh, a and question. I didn't know about this. And this has not come up by from any customer ever until recently. Uh, in uh, UCS, you know, so I'm going to enable UCS4, and that'll give us the entire UCS16 character set 32. Uh, available 32. for Python. 32. Oh, 32, 32. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like Unicode is a is a topic that can. But last it'll take many more memory. <laughs> It'll, it'll, it might use a little bit more memory, so, but it'll, but it'll give you more compatibility. It doesn't make any sense what Python does for Unicode, though, because um, UCS4, also known as UTF32, uh, is four bytes per character. Yes, and it's fixed width. Yes, but the largest Unicode character that can ever be is 21-bit. <laughs> so you're throwing away... Um, A third, almost, into nothing. Um, because Unicode ends at 21 bits. You can't go higher than that. You, you will never be... So you're saying that, you're saying that UTF-32 uh, is flawed. No, UTF-32 is fine. Um, but it's... Because when it was made, they thought that, oh, Unicode will be able to go all the way to 32 bits. That was sort of the... No, so, that wasn't actually Unicode, it was ISO. Um, the Unicode originally thought that 16 bits is good enough for everybody. Um, so they started with this, and then there was a second group of people that made the ISO spec, for, which was competing with Unicode. And they had a different character encoding, and it was all the way going to 32 bits. And then when they had to merge them together, they had to clean up the mess that they made, uh, which involved surrogate pairs and a whole bunch of other stuff, and then they agreed on that UTF-16 is going to be the superset to UCS-2. UCS-2 was the one where you only had 16 bits for characters, and they would yes. end with 65,000. And with UTF-16... And that was, a, that was the precursor to UTF-16. Yes. And so when they had to make UTF-16 to make more space for more characters, they had to um, get rid of a whole bunch of space in Unicode forever so that... UCS2 and UTF16 can stay compatible, and, and UTF8 can stay compatible and so forth. So it actually doesn't... So there's just holes in the astral plane of Unicode there? Uh, well, I don't know exactly how it works, but basically different character sets like UTF8 and UTF16 have different quirks to it. And if you add all the quirks up, um, 
it tops out at. So this this transitions into my next question. And these problems go away in three. You don't have the option of UTF uh, or U, U, UCS two yeah, or four. Yeah, but I was always three. going to pick the worst one now, practically because. Of, so, <laughs> all right, so here's an interesting thought. Um, okay, well, hang on before before we get there. So. No, no, I'm not going, uh, to, I know I'm not going to complain about this. Well, no. I, I, from what I understand, you had you wrote a great blog post about some of the your complaints about fundamental problems with in, with, um, I, with so, Unicode but, but, in Python three as the implementation, and, and it had to do with internationalization. And I'm curious if you could enlighten our listeners as to what they are, because Python three is is not going away and it is I've accepted that every new application should be built on three and uh, it's obviously not going away but what are the problems so for I internationalization? I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a problem. Okay. I would say that so, some decisions made are made for a reason and sometimes it's a good idea to question if those reasons are valid. That's sort of my, yeah. my starting point here because just go back 10 years. That's sort of when Python mm-hmm. 3, or more than 10 years, 15 years. So when Python 3 started... Py- uh, Python 2000. Python 3000. It was called... 3000. PSYYK. Yeah. Um, when, yes. when, when that project started, um, the there was the idea that, okay, Unicode is going to be like... Uh, like, we're going to upgrade everything to Unicode, and blah, blah, blah. blah. And the, the other idea that kind of fed into this was that Really, the only interesting thing happens in basic plane. While there are some characters outside of basic plane, the majority fits into basic plane. So basic plane is um, yes. sort of caps at 65k. Um, yeah. Um, so, so first of all, that is clearly no longer true. Now, now emojis are not yes. in the 65k, so, right? Because emojis are actually the interesting case. Because at the time, I remember having a conversation with Martin van Lewis where he said that, well, actually, Armin, um, while... Theoretically, you're correct. There could be stuff outside of 16-bit. Practically, for the majority of people, it's never going to happen. Um, <laughs> and then, no and then emojis happened. Um, so I couldn't, uh-huh. I couldn't have predicted emojis, probably. Um, so at that point, he clearly won the argument. Now, I'm in the upper hand, because <laughs> emojis exist. And the reason why it's an issue now for Python 3, uh, and by issue, I mean like why it's no longer as logical is because on Python 3, you have this thing where the character encoding on the string internally changes upwards to whatever is necessary to hold the highest character point. Yes, so, and it, we discussed this on a previous episode with Lucaso where he described it as there, there are three different stages. There's a, there's a basic stage and an intermediary stage and then this upper stage of Unicode that can be internally represented. Yeah, it, right? it can have Latin 1 internally, it can have uh, UCS2 and UCS4. That's kind of what it takes. Um, yes. But it now takes Ginger, for instance, as a templating engine. So you start rendering your HTML, and it starts out with stock type, HTML, blah, blah, blah. All ASCII. So it's all, all ASCII, basic. All ASCII. So you, you go all the way uh-huh. until you hit the first international character, and it's going to upgrade your string from Latin 1. It re-encodes them to UCS2 or UTF-16. And now it hits the first emoji. Is that, is that a problem for you, or is it just magic and it just works? No, it, it works automatically. It's internally, but it's not okay. efficient because okay. because it okay. starts upgrading your string twice. Um, so would it have been better to just do UTF sixteen the whole no, time? No, I, I wouldn't have done any of that. I would have said like it's two thousand. Okay, 
it's not 2016, it's 2016 now, but at the time was probably not. I would honestly have just thrown away the entirety of the Unicode object in Python. I would have said, this is bytes. Ah. There are UTF-8 in there. You can't slice them, you can't dice them. You can have a view of them as if they're UTF-8 characters um, in a Unicode You can screen. or cannot slice them. You cannot slice them. You can, you can look at them. Mm. So basically, you have the same... So this is what Go and Rust do. So this is, I have a theory of what would have been a better approach for Python 3, and it would have been to just keep the the, the strings uh, working the way they do in 2, but just remove the implicit encoding and raise an error when that happens. Yeah. And then that would have taken care of any data integrity errors. But but even then, I so that as a start would have been a good place, but then I would never have done this thing by encoding to UTF-16 and UTF-32 internally, because think about what actually happens on a daily basis. The web speaks, speaks UTF-8. Your Mac speaks UTF-8. Your Linux kernel speaks yeah. UTF-8. Everything other than... Everything win- speaks UTF-8. Other than Windows. Windows. Has UTF- Windows, But yeah. even Windows has UTF-16. Um, and there, there are more clever people than me that figured out really good ways to deal with UTF-16 in in the context of Windows. There's, for instance... Uh, uh, ru- are, is, are, there, are there characters that can be represented in UTF-16 that cannot be represented in UTF-8? Uh, theoretically, yes, but practically it was agreed on that 21-bit is the maximum. But theoretically, okay. uh, UTF-8 can represent more characters than UTF-16, theoretically. Uh, yes, because it can expand yeah. as, as, it's need, as, it need, as is needed. Um, but, so, I, I would say... Like, so UTF-8 kind of takes care of this problem so by just, itself. Just look at how it works in Go and Rust. The bytes come in, and you look at them bytes for as long as you need to, and then you start looking at those bytes as if they're UTF-8 data, and you wrap them in a string, which now still carries the bytes internally, but it now gives you yes. like iterators yes. over the characters and so forth. And it's a free conversa- it's a free conversion. All you have to do is like, make sure it's well-formed, doesn't have any crazy things in it, and then you look at it and it's... So then string becomes like a function, basically. S- string becomes a view. It's, it's a view of bytes. A view, yes. Um, yes. I like that a lot. That, but, that sounds so, very logical to me. And that's kind of how it works in, in requests. Uh, I have dot .content, which is the bytes. And then I have dot, uh, u, dot uh, .text, which is the Unicode representation. And you can change the encoding. By default, it'll be what the server provides. And if that there's an apparent encoding... Because the server usually lies, and I'll, I'll detect what the encoding is, and then add that in there. And uh, you can write your own string, though. You can say it's UTF-16 if you want, and then it'll decode automatically properly. And I think that that's the right pattern to use. So the downside of doing it this way is that you can't take, take the first character, uh, because the first character would require... Is it, well, you can take the first character, but you can't take the end character. Because UTF-8 is obviously variable length, you can't predict where the character will be. Because emojis. Well, you'd have to start. You'd have to start from the beginning. Yeah, you have to go one by one. And actually, it turns out that. In- so you can't treat them like streams. Well, you can. You can't seek in them. You can treat it like a stream of incoming bytes, but you can't say like I want to go to character two hundred. Because you. Yeah, you, you so UTF-8. Yeah. but but you could if it was if, if it was UTF-16. No, with UTF-16 you can't either. You can do it with UTF-4. Because UTF-16 okay. has the same issue, because um, some characters are represented through two character co- uh, character points. I thought 16 was fixed width. 32 is, six, is fixed UCS width. UCS2 is fixed width. UCS4 is fixed width. UTF-16 and UTF-8 are variable length. And UTF-32 gotcha. is the same as UCS4, so it's also fixed length. 
And that's why Python okay, so operates. If, if they use 32 all the time, that would solve all the problems. Yeah, but then you waste a lot of memory. But it's not, yeah. it's not just the memory that you waste. It's also that um, it's, it's a lot of effort recon, like converting one and the other way constantly. Um, and, and very often you don't know at the right time yet what the encoding will be. Take, for instance, your server example. The server tells you what the encoding is. It says it's less than one. But clearly you don't trust the server. Yeah. Because you know course. that very often the server is lying. I'm like 80% of the time yeah, they're lying. But now take uh, early examples of Python 3, where the libraries were so convinced that never ever would anyone lie about anything. So it already decided to decode from Latin 1. So now you have presented with incorrectly encoded Unicode data, you have to go back to Latin 1 to then decode from UTF-8, for instance. And this is, for instance... But it's nice that it's doing all this for you, that you don't have to do it by hand, because if you're supporting 2 and 3 by hand, you do have to do this by hand. To, if you're supporting uh, 2 and 3 at the same anyways, time, it's horrible. I don't, I don't horrible. know about like, Unicode and Python 3 too much, but I'm saying that... Okay, okay. I would have gone, gone away with with this strict idea that Unicode is uh, is supposed to be decoded. I would have said Unicode, yes. there is bytes, and you can look at those bytes in different ways. By default, you look at them as UTF-8 data, um, and then if you know better... Do you think that that a third-party library could before, provide that functionality? Um, no, because that that's API? what I looked into. The problem with this is that very often you have to pass strings into APIs that are eventually ending up in the interpreter. So, for instance, uh, file names is a common problem in Python 3. <clears throat> yes. And they they also didn't figure out themselves, I guess, how to fix this properly. Or URLs. Or URLs. So there are lots of these places where the string type is not correct necessarily, or you need something yeah. else, but you can't make a subclass of a string because it doesn't behave exactly the same way because when it goes into the interpreter, it actually fetches everything but the buffer. Um, so there is no abstraction that you can hook into on the interpreter level. So that's why you can't fix it in the library, because you need to pass it to those very basic objects. Um, so anyway, we should probably move on to other topics. Yes, please. <laughs> um, so, okay, so I know that uh, you took kind of a Python hiatus for a little while, and it seems like you're kind of back in the game now. You're, there's Flask is being maintained. You have some maintainers that are helping you do that. Are you actively involved in the stewardship of requests? Or, sorry, of, um, of Flask? Are you the BDFL? Yeah, I guess that's what you would call it. I mean, I never expected those libraries to become this big in the first place, which throws you into the situation that all of a sudden and the world demands you to do something with them. Yeah, well, that's the thing, is it's so stable because it, it never got updated and it doesn't really need any updates. <laughs> See, this, though, is my, right? this, is, this is the way I look at this. I'm, like, I'm super careful doing things with it because I feel like every time I touch it a little bit too much, it falls over. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, because it's like it's such as I mean how many lines of code is Flask I remember at one point it was only like 600 right yeah it's more than that but it's not a lot more like the main reason Flask looks big now is because the doc strings are really long like I'm pretty sure okay, the majority okay. of the code is doc strings um, yeah that's fantastic also there's a there's a library in there called now uh, like an internal module it's called oh. ebook support I think and it's a bunch of functions that are called in various different places to <clears throat> improve the error messages. Oh, nice. So I've noticed that. They got really nice error messages in the debugger now. 
Yeah. So, so. And I, I also noticed uh, that you use markup safe now. You have more dependencies. Yes. <laughs> uh, markup safe. Uh, what else is there? Jincha. Uh, uh, markup safe. There's oh, one, it's, the, the, uh, it's dangerous, I think. Yeah, it's dangerous. Yeah, that's so. What what is that used for? Built in. I know that's used for generating um, on like safe, unsafe URLs that are safe, basically. Uh, yeah, it's used uh, for signing the cookies. So if you use the session, oh, okay. it's so before that was built in. That was like a function that you stole, yeah. and now it's its own module. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So yeah, that's that's an awesome library. I want to use that for some stuff, but I I never have. Yeah, it's. Uh, I like the name. It's dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, there's there's so much stuff that you write over the years, and then <clears throat> you can kind of. It's, stuff it's a really beautiful framework because it it really does everything you need, and it's so basic. Um, and as soon as you get to form validation, you know, I just do assert statements and stuff like that, and I keep it simple. I don't use Flask WTF or anything, but that's kind of what everybody else uses. And there's is I think that's the top contender. That's like the top. Uh, what, what, what are your? How, here's a good question for you. What are your favorite Flask extensions? See, this is exactly the question that doesn't work with me because I don't use any. <laughs> so, well, you know, you use Flask SQL Alchemy probably. Yeah, I use that one, but it doesn't really count because I made it in the first place. Because because um, you made it. That now I want you to know that I have tried using SQL Alchemy directly, and I find it very unpleasurable. Um, but using it through Flask SQL Alchemy, I find it very pleasurable. So you did a really good job. Yeah, I think it's okay. Um, I, I would do things different again, but <laughs> I don't want to break everybody's code now. Like, it's like if you it's can make a new one. Flask SQL Alchemy too. <laughs> Fla- Flask, uh, yeah, exactly. Flask Gnostic Alchemy, SQL Gnosticism. But I mean, like the thing is that I, I feel like. As far as frameworks go, I wouldn't change that much. Yeah. I feel like... Yeah, were there any that, big mistakes that you feel you made with Flask oh in yeah, the design? Definitely. There, what, what are they? Like, what would you... If you could just, like, go back in time and change something about I it... I would change the routing completely. The routing doesn't make any sense. Really? Simple. That's my favorite part. <laughs> uh, no, I, I would... I... Yeah, I... So... It's complicated. Would you change the context locals? No. I'm married okay. to them so much. <laughs> so here's the thing. Like, you learn something at one point. Discover like what's right, what's wrong. And for me, passing stuff down was always the right thing. I was fighting against threat locals so much. Um, and then I learned. Um, now, because, now, is Flask thread safe? Yeah, it is. See, I heard, I heard someone on the internet... I always thought it was. And someone on the internet recently said... It uses context locals, therefore it is not thread safe. Not, and I was like, isn't that the whole point of using them? Yeah. Like, yeah, it's it really, safe. yeah. So here's the thing. Okay. Context locals, I have way too much talk about this, but they are very good, not for the reason that people think they're good. Um, because what actually happens with context locals, or <clears throat> I don't know, it's hard to explain, but the point is that you have to think of it this way. It's hard to justify, but trust no, 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 me, it's, guys. It's not it's justification. Good. It's that um, conceptually what they are, <laughs> they are not thread local data. They look like thread local data, but they're not really. What they actually are, they're hidden function arguments. Think of it this way. Yes. Every function that you yes. call gets hidden data. That's kind of how it works. If one function wants to modify yeah. it, it can do it in a way that if the function call ends, it gets restored to what it was before. Um, that is a very powerful concept. It actually turns out to have a name. I didn't know it at the time, um, but I think it's called oh. continuation passing style. 
I think that's okay. I think that's what okay. it's called. I'm not entirely sure. I came I came across it recently because um because of when, and you're just because of async IO. Okay. Async IO this concept is missing and currently can't be replicated. Um so huh. th- that's why I came across this a little bit again. Ah, that's cool. Hold on a so, so you des- you designed. Uh, oh, that's good because I have to use the restroom real quick. Okay. I'll be right. I'll be right back. Right. <clears throat> Sorry about that. All right. Uh, and we're back. So I wanted to say that it's basically hidden function arguments. So you can think of it this way. Um, and they. Because they're hidden, they get automatically propagated. And in many ways, that's kind of how the interpreter in Python works internally anyways, because it has to pass around these threads, the interpreter state, for instance, a bunch of stuff like this. Um, and actually, it turns out to be a very useful concept because it allows you to access data cleanly from any depth of the call stack, even if it goes through libraries which are completely yeah, unaware have... of things. Yeah, and, yes. and every other framework also has to do this. Like, translations in Django are thread locals and stuff like this. So for me, it feels like making this a first-class documented behavior that you can interact with makes it at least very clear what the hell is happening. Um, That's good. So I, I'm, so I'm married to context locals. I think they're great <laughs> I, I don't disagree. They're definitely something that takes a little bit of acclimation to because you don't the see them. The problem is that like in you, Python, it's You would just expect that request... The, the, I think they're a good idea because... Because the idea is you would just want to pass in the request object to every every um, route automatically and have that be the first method uh, or the first um, parameter, right? But then you, there's more than that. There's like eight of these things, yeah. right? And you don't want to have it, so you have to pass in eight of them each time. So, so people so stuck it on a that, request That's object. why it's a good idea. Yeah, that's request on G, request on... Yeah. No, I mean, like in Django, for instance, everything is attached to the request objects at this point. Like people, like request.user, request.session. Like why is the user on a request? Like what's the relationship yeah, of the user yeah. to the request? I think that is a better API, but at the same time, I feel like that's a, a, a not a good abstraction. Like it's easier to remember. Yeah. But at the same time, it's uh, it's not as elegant. Like you could have two things that one of them is like you just pass in two things. One is request, and the other one is meta, and it's just filled with it's just a dictionary filled with shit, right? Yeah. So the um. But then you can't modify it. So the thing is, like they're, in, they're... in the Python world, I think this kind of stuff is not super popular. Um, if you actually look a little bit over, um, what do you call it? Over your plate? Do you saw this? No. I mean, like, you look over your horizon. Um, and then... Over your plate? <laughs> in German, it's called this, you look over your plate. <laughs> really? Yeah, we don't even look that far. <laughs> but anyways... <laughs> it's because they're so hyper-focused yeah. on what's going on, the design. <laughs> That's funny. But so if you look a little bit over your horizon, you will find that in .NET, for instance, there's a concept called the logical call context. Um, and the logical call context is a... Is a is, is used um, as a primary concept in, um, in in COM and other systems to to deal with security context, so that the call cannot yeah. do things that it's not supposed to do. Like security is a is a big um, benefits from context tokens a lot because, for instance, um, you know when you build a SaaS software, you have multiple customers on your <clears throat> on your platform. You want to make sure that one customer cannot access data from another customer. 
So one of the yeah. easiest things you can do is you can, for instance, say that by default, any query created from this object is is limited to the current organization. So you can yeah. at any point figure out what's my current organization and then limit the query. So you can't you can't fuck up. You can't accidentally forget to limit it to the organization or something like this. Um, and that's something that's so it's a, it's that's something that's being enabled by context locals. That's much more tricky to do without them because you might forget about it. It's like it's more explicit, but if you forget it, then you're host. Maybe you should add like a paragraph or two to the Flask documentation in defense of context locals. Uh, there or already is one, and people still complain. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well so the other thing i wanted to ask you about was so you're the bdfl of flask um you made click that was your new library are you in are you actively pursuing writing new python libraries at this moment i know that you're involved in other other languages like rust uh, i built um, i built a content management system not too long ago it's oh called really Lector. is it open source yeah, it's called lector it's, how do you spell that uh, it's like lector but with a k Oh, actually, yeah, it's uh, yeah. See, this is the thing. L-E- I can't L E K T A R. I I can't name things. See, this is the problem. Your stuff is always really hard to spell. Yeah. Is it like Hannibal Lecter? All right. So for the listeners, you can go to getlecter.com, G E T L E K T O R.com, and it's a CMS. Is this built on top of flat? Ooh, I like the the egg on the frying pan. It's uh, it's 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 a con- aesthetic. Static file content management system. Oh, so you have it, okay. you have it cool. running locally and you have an admin and you can change files and then you can deploy it wherever the hell you want. It's it's not built on top of Flask. The admin panel is built on top of Flask. But it's a, it's, so instead of this being a static site generator, it's a CMS. Yeah, it's a combination of both. It has a database backend where you, your database is flat files and you can query them and do stuff with them, and then you can build cool Just like the original uh, Denied, right? Yeah. Denied had a database. It was web. It was infinitely web scale because it had a text file for the database. <laughs> Those were the days where you could still make fun of my, uh, my baby. <laughs> uh, I, so I didn't know about this. This has 2,000 stars on GitHub. Um, you can chat on Gitter. That's great. Cross-platform. Uh, flat file database. I like it. I like it a lot. And is it using SQLite or uh, or is it just using text stuck, files? It's really just flat files. Uh, you can if you click on the bottom, there's like a source code. You can see what the website looks like. Uh, wait, I don't. Is it? Oh, is it the? It's the, the source code button. It's the button that looks like um Angular brackets. Oh wow, this looks nice. So are, is this using YAML or something? Uh, not really, but almost. Yeah, because I see the, yeah. the the page separators there. Cool. So the whole thing is it's, it's all one file. Yeah, but it's Python. So I'm still doing Python things. That's cool. That's cool. I didn't know about this. I'm going to start so this right this is now. It's actually an interesting thing. The, the reason why I built this actually goes kind of back to the conversation we had a bunch of years ago, which was that how do you build something which doesn't disappear on the face of the internet? Because as you accumulate more things... And they're all dynamic web applications. You kind of have to keep the servers running and everything. It's, oh, and it has an admin too. Yeah, it has an admin. But the point is that you can. So it's not all file based, but you can still edit the files. Yeah. Oh, it's like the best of both worlds. You know, I think I did see this and I forgot about it. But the point is that you, because it's static HTML, it will never go away. You, did, you put it on the shittiest web server, and someone can read it in 200 years for as long as we still know how to parse HTML, obviously. Yes. 
Um, That's really important for for blogs and stuff. Yeah. So I, I don't want my shit to disappear. Um, so I try to do a thing static now. Because I had I built so much stuff over the years, which completely disappeared because I can't be bothered to keep the software running. Yeah, it's hard. You need, you need other people to be interested in it. So do people use this? Uh, yeah, I do have some. I mean... It looks really cool. I think the biggest problem it has is that in this market of, like, market, I wouldn't call it, it's an open source project. It doesn't have a market, but... Yeah, well, there's a market for static site yeah, generators, for sure. Yeah, a lot of already sure. established static file generators, and it kind of competes with them to some degree. Um, I think that this is a kind of a step above what the idea of a static site generator, and it, it's... Um, so, so I think what, what in, makes in it a really good nice direction. is that... It's kind of like the WordPress of... Star, it's like the WordPress of static file generators. Yeah, but I think what makes it nice is that you can define a data model. So you can define, if does this page have a title? Does it have a date? So you define what kind of things you have, and then you can query them, and you can build custom templates. Can you have different page templates? Yeah. So it's it's, oh, it's, nice. it's more like a mini C file can be built uh, and Django admin on top of static files. That's kind of how it works. That's really nice. And then how how do you do the themes? Are they Jinja 2? Yes, or... Jinja 2. Okay. Wow, that sounds really pleasant to work with. Yeah, I think it's actually quite nice. I just should spend more time on it. <laughs> do you have any production websites that are running on it other than the website? Yeah, if for you go it? to showcase the first two, I think I made. I, I basically built this for my parents. Showcase. I built it for your parents. I, I see, I have my parents use Squarespace. So I built a website of my parents with this. And then do they, how do they deploy? Do they deploy to Dropbox? Um, so they, they use Dropbox and they just um, have it in there and they run it on the Mac. Um, um, and it just press the deploy button and it goes up or you can hook it up with Travis or anything that, that does yeah. stuff. That's awesome. Oh, and Palettes. Palettes uses it. Yeah. Excellent. And Palettes, I, so I'm part of the Palettes organization because I'm a maintainer of Flask, even though I rarely do anything. <laughs> Um, uh, can you want to tell everyone about Palettes and what it is? Uh, so, uh, I mentioned, it's like the rebranding of Poco, so I mentioned right? earlier that there used to be this German Ubuntu community and then a bunch of people did stuff there and then eventually Poco appeared. <clears throat> and they end up in a situation where there is a group of people called the Poco team. But it yes. doesn't really... I remember I used to hang out in that room a lot. It was back in the but day then, on IRC. But then now it's 15 years later, and it's kind of... Un- oh, it's not 15 years. It's like 12 years later. But it's kind of unclear. Like, those people are doing different things now. It's not a... It's like, what does it even mean at this point, Pukuti? You know? It's like... Yeah. It's like it's this... more like a, an old boys club, right? Yeah. So... I took the project that I actually made. How do you even spell Poco? I don't remember. Is it P-O-O-C-O? P-O-C-O. P-O-C-O-O. There it is. I wasn't met. 370 people in your room. That's amazing. Yeah, it still lives. But anyways. Is there a panel? Is there a pallets room? No. Um, there should be ah, one. Ah, okay. But so there should be one. Um, but IRC is kind of... Well, there's one, there, there's one now. <laughs> And there's someone already there, GT Hank. <laughs> of course, GT Hank's already there. Um, but basically, I would say that the, the, the intention is to let the community 
actually drive this now instead of this old voice not yeah i like that i like that a lot um is this is is the palace project website getting traffic do people know that it's a thing i mean there's not that much information on it <clears throat> so it's not like i i like that it has on it descriptions for each each project instead of just links yeah i think that that's really nice this it's a it's good and these are all of your main projects. You have Click, Flask, It's Dangerous, Jinja, Markup Safe. Yeah, I basically Orson. moved them all that belong together into this organization. <clears throat> but Lecter is not a part of this organization. Correct. Okay. So it's and that's because that's your pro- that's your project. Well, it's not because of my project, but because it doesn't like. I, my goal is not to put more things onto this <clears throat> palettes project. I want to keep it like like the things that go together go there. Like Lecter has no overlap with those. Like I, so my original goal was to make requests a part of Poco, um, but then I decided to keep it for myself. Uh, but requests could—not I, I, at this point. I think it's too established. But requests could fit in here as a palette project. I think potentially. Yeah, at least a lot more than like the wood. Yeah, yeah, that would be fun. I'd like to see it listed <clears throat> there, but because I, I like being associated with. Uh, with Poco, but I think Request has enough of a its own brand that it doesn't need to be separate. It doesn't need to be included. Yeah. Would you be Would you be open to that if I wanted to do that? So here's the thing: like I'm trying to keep this now community organized. So whatever the community comes up mm-hmm. with, I think this will be fine. <clears throat> See, the thing is, I wouldn't want to move the GitHub repo. I'd want it to stay underneath Kenneth Wright's. So that's my that's my only thing. <laughs> See, I finally moved all my repos. Oh, you did? See, I want my GitHub stars. <laughs> Those are important to me. So you're doing work with... So what's your favorite programming language now? Do you spend your daytime writing Python? Or I know you love Rust. Um, I'm trying to do some useful... So I most of my time goes into Sentry. <clears throat> and that's a Python project. Which is a fantastic service, by the way. It's one of my, my favorite Heroku add-on is Sentry. By far. That's good to hear. You know, it, it kind of started yeah. out. I highly, if, if anyone doesn't know what Sentry does, is you just add like two lines to your application, your web application, and then uh, anytime an exception occurs in production, it emails you and it tells you everything that happened, everything that was going on, and it allows you to resend the request that created that exception. Uh, it's with if you're using the Flask add-on for it. But it also and works with JavaScript uh, and many other things, so it's no longer contained to just Python. It's great. Yes, it works with all languages, right? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, it's, it's a, a very powerful like service. It. And there's other... With a big, what are the big competitors to it? Um, in which space? In in exception tracking. Um, there's a... I, I know that... Because like, I know I if know you talk to Ruby people, they don't use Sentry. They use... Um, there's Airbrick. Exceptional or something. No, Airbrick. 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 What is it? Rollbar roll or Airbrake. Rollbar, yeah, rollbar and Airbrake. Those are the two, yeah. Um, and I, I, I'm just all Sentry for Python, and that's what people use, and uh, uh, that's what I recommend. And it's, it's just so nice. I'm, I'm, I feel I really confident like now, uh, like also proposing it to other programming languages. I know that we are really good at Ruby and PHP now, and JavaScript. I think we are like JavaScript might be our best. Like more than Python, I think. 
as far really yeah, I think it's it's up there and so you're kind of in the space of New Relic, where New Relic is like this hosted thing that allows you to get introspection into your web application's performance. This is more like in the same line of this is a service that allows you to get uh, introspection into the performance of your application. Like, you know, if there's ever a 500 that occurs, why did it occur? And it tells you how often it occurred. And if, it, you know, you can mark it as resolved, basically like it's an open issue on GitHub. Yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, it's quite nice. I highly recommend it to anyone who hasn't tried it yet. And, of course, it's open source, so you can run your own instance of it yourself. But the great part is you don't have to. You can just use their service, and it's just turnkey, and it just works. And the pricing is very reasonable. I think you can get away for with a lot for free, right? Yeah. Yeah, like I've never needed to pay for it, I don't think. Because <laughs> no, I... if you're doing things right, you don't have many exceptions. You know, and also, I think what's... Uh, I really hope my computer is um, I, I think what's really nice about uh, our century is just that a lot of projects say like, oh, we're like an open source project, um, but then they're not really. I mean, they are technically, but then they sell you some stuff which is um, which is not available in the open source version. Like our stuff is fully open source. You're just literally selling. A, a hosted version of it, the exact product that's open source. Yeah, more or less. I mean, there are some differences for billing and, and quota management and, and scaling. That, um, that yeah, stuff that you would need if you were running it yourself. Yeah. Well, so it's that's great. It's an interesting so adventure. Get to... As a result of this, yeah, there's not many open source projects go down this path. I think. Yeah, and so. Century does, um, they sponsor PyCon, and I remember their booth was absolutely blowing up last year. I remember <laughs> I saw Matt at, at the booth, and he, he, there he was just swarmed by people. And I, I didn't get a chance to talk to him, but I just said, looks like you're doing pretty good. <laughs> it was great. But so it's mostly Python there. So I do obviously a lot is of it still, uh, Is David still running the show over there, David Kramer? Of course. Of Mr. course, Century. I haven't talked to him in a while. He's a he's an elusive character in my life. He's um. I can't tell if he loves me or hates me. I love him. <laughs> <laughs> we used to be like in a silent competition with each other. Well, he he reminds me a lot of Craig Kirsten's. Oh, you know, they're they're similar to each other. Where there's like this silent, um, like I don't know. I can't. It's hard to describe, but. I, I really can't tell if they like me or not. <laughs> well, I think that, uh, so, that, that there are many ways in which you can c categorize people, but I think one differentiating factor between lots of different people is... Um, hold on a second. I have to take a call quickly. Oh, no problem. What is this
Ja, und zwar, da gibt es dann 17 Euro pro Monat. Ja, weil wenn du den Tarif über 24 Monate nimmst, ist der Mindestvertrag sauer. Wenn du separat nimmst, dann ist er mit einem Monat Mindestvertrag sauer. Und dann, wenn du es auf äh, zwei Jahre hochrechnest, sind es äh, 17 Euro, sind 170 Euro pro Jahr plus 20 Euro sind 400 Euro insgesamt. Das heißt, das Telefon kostet insgesamt 1.100 Euro auf zwei Jahre. Das ist wesentlich günstiger, als wenn du ein Tarif kriegst, wenn das Telefon kostet. Und du kannst jedes Monat kündigen. Äh, 40 Euro. Was? Von drei, ja. Du kannst dann einen kleineren nehmen, das gibt dann günstiger Nachfrage. Aber der um 17 Euro ist ja. Also, uh, also, uh, okay, so it's like my, my mother recorded calls me like three times. Oh, 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 no problem. It will be important, but no, it's Christmas presents. It's not that important. <laughs> no, I wanted to finish my thought, which is that I think <clears throat> one of the ways in which you can... Well, hang on. Let's, let's, uh, let me make a sound so I can know when you stopped. All right, go ahead. So I wanted to say that one of the ways in which you can um, categorize people would be how memorable a character is. Like, oh yes, David is extremely memorable. Yes, he's absolutely memorable. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that, that's actually a good segue into something I wanted to ask you about is, you know, we all know Armin from Flask and we know Armin from all these great prolific Python libraries, but do we know the real Armin Roenacher? Uh You know, first of all, how do you pronounce your name properly? <clears throat> first one is Armin. The second one is Ar Ar Armin? Mm -hmm. And then how do you say Ronaker? Ronaker. Ronaker? <laughs> no, at this point, I don't even know how to pronounce my own name because whenever you're in an English speaking environment, it's just kind of. I don't know. Gurgle it out? Yeah, gurgle it out somewhere. So uh, I was on a podcast last night and they asked me some interesting questions and I thought it'd be fun to ask you something similar. Uh, if Off the top of your head, top five uh, movies, books, uh you know stuff like that what are, like what are the things that inspire you the most uh that are not programming related or maybe programming related uh books that inspire me or movies that inspire, i don't think movies. Um, or or in music in music music oh that's hard because music at this point has become so i used to have this phase where i was like really into music as a as a way to express myself i guess in some way Mm -hmm. My life has changed. Um, music now for yeah, do you me spend is your, Do you spend your free time programming? Do you have any other hobbies? Uh, I have a son. That's plenty of hobby. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. You have a kid. That probably changed everything, didn't it? Um, well, at least at the moment. He's, he's definitely uh, uh, occupies time, I would say. Um. <laughs> no, I, so you're a family man. Uh, so yeah, what, what, what's your favorite mu music and books and, and media right. consumption? So I think favorite media consumption at the moment is Westworld. Um, Westworld, I've never heard of that. It's a the TV show, uh, I think, on HBO in the States. It's, um, it's just the best show that you can watch right now, I think. Um, 
Murray and I were like waiting every week for it to come out. Before that, we watched Sense8. I think both of those are great shows. Um, Excellent. So definitely shows, I think, uh, ranks higher than movies for me, just because there's a little bit more depth to them, usually. But I really like Breaking Bad and uh, Mr. Robot. Yeah. Uh, those are the and shows like that. Mr. Robot season two is not very good, but I like season one. Uh, I just watched Better Call Saul. I think that's what the name of the show is. Uh, you know, the spinoff from Breaking yeah, Bad. I didn't watch that. Uh, I watched the first two episodes, and I was like, oh, okay, no. It get, it gets better. Okay. It gets better. Um, but yeah, show, I think I watched more shows than movies as well. But there's some movies that I really like. Like I just watched Doctor Strange, the new Marvel movie, and I think that's one of the best superhero movies I've ever seen. I, I like pretty much all the things that comes out of Nolan and um, Fincher. Yeah. I think I watched them all. <laughs> I, I like this kind what of. What about stuff. so? And so music isn't really a big part of your life anymore? Oh, it's a huge part in the sense that like, I listen to it constantly. But it's not that I associate myself with, like, oh, this band. Or, what, do you, what do you listen to? I think it's a, it's a wide mix at this point. I think it's mostly trying some electronical stuff that I can program to. Um, have, you, have you tried listening to my, my album? No. <laughs> I listen to Lucas Lange's okay. album. <laughs> People, people say that people say that my uh, my music's really good to program too. All right, I'll have so to try it. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I listen to a uh, lot of Blanca and stuff like this as well, which is sort of. I listen to a lot of uh, hip hop. Uh, I'm not that huge into hip hop. A little bit. A um, little bit, like the like the the hits. I like Kanye quite a bit. Yeah, I think that's the kind of hip hop that I listen to. Like Kanye, you can yeah. definitely see uh, on my on my last event. Um, uh, are you still use Last FM? I don't know. I my, I think it stopped scrubbing at one point, but I used to listen. <laughs> yeah, me too. I know you. I didn't you used to be into progressive rock as well? Yeah, I listened to a lot of that stuff, like Pin of Salvation, um, Opeth, and I still do. Yeah. But it's um, it's the kind of music that you can't really. It's like you li- you lie back and listen to it. It's not like um. Yeah, it's, it's too immersive. Yeah. yeah, you have to really concentrate on the music to like just follow along. Yeah, it's, I used to listen to a lot of like Dream Theater and then all the bands that are related to that, like yeah. Liquid Tension Experiment. And uh, oh, I love that stuff. But I can't, I, I never listen to it anymore. Oh, it's too actually, much. Dream Theater, I started listening to it quite a bit again because <clears throat> it's really good for driving, I realized. Oh, yeah. yeah. We, when I listen to that stuff, I drive too fast. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite electronic musicians are uh, Moby and Dead Mouse. I like them quite yeah. a bit. Dead Mouse is good. Moby, uh, Dead Mouse is very good, and Moby Moby's incredible, but he's all over the place. Yeah, yeah, but I, I, I don't uh, listen to I them on a regular the, basis so anymore. Speaking of progressive rock, I used to listen to ah, oh, that was called uh, Ulver, and some of the newer Ulver albums are basically electronic music. <laughs> like oh, every, really? every single like it used to be black metal, metal, and then it became progressive rock. And now and it's it something electronic else progressive. Like every album. Electro progressive. Yeah, the my one of my favorite bands growing up was Linkin Park, you know, like everyone's <laughs> was and when we were kids. And uh it's amazing if you listen to them now, they're a totally different band. Every album is is like literally a work of art by a different group of yeah. people, it feels like. It, you can't it doesn't resonate with me at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of music that you associate with a specific part of your life. Becomes very hard to then um, 
listen again. So because he so listens, it, sounds to it, like, it reminds you. So it sounds like software is kind of like your main craft that you participate in. Um, I I think you're in a similar position to me, and I think I've seen you go through it. And I'm writing a talk on this right now, where you know you achieve this amount of fame and uh, prolificness in the community, where um, you I know that was something that I wanted and that I sought after and that I got and I got more than I ever asked for. Um, I feel like, I don't know if that's something that you optimized for or if it was an accident. Um, but once you got it, you get kind of burned out after a while, right? Yeah. Do you, and is that something that, are you struggling with that still? I know I, I struggle with it. like Because there's this tension between the idea of like, I worry about losing my my um, uh, my clout, if you will. Like, if I stop making new things, that people will stop caring. So, I a big part of me is like, I really need to write, time, you know, date time for humans or something like that. Um, and yeah, I don't, but know. I don't well, really have any other motivations. So, but then I don't because I don't. I'm not building anything right now because I'm yeah. I'm not like coding very much in my spare time. So the thing is, like, I so it doesn't really like for me. It was always about the craft of doing something, um, and hip, yeah, thinking about what would be theoretically if you want to do it correctly. What would that look like? Um, so the idea of analyzing a problem, me, me too, and then finding the right abstraction for it. This for me is like a puzzle, and I like that. Um, and now what I realize is that the problems I want to solve are a lot more complex. So they are a lot harder to, like, I have some things I would love to build. And the reason I don't build it is because I realized that that's a lot of a bigger problem than making a web framework. Um, yes. So Yes, that's how I feel about daytime for humans. <laughs> so one of the things that I started to do now is I have a huge selection of notes, of things that, like, just random ramblings that I have for myself. It's like, oh, yeah, this is this is how I think about this problem. And then... Hopefully, the idea is that I eventually have enough nodes of a specific problem that I can sit down and actually start solving it. Um, so that's sort of the puzzle aspect of it. Um, and and I, so that's why I stopped doing new libraries a lot is because I feel like there's so many problems I want to solve. I I can't just solve them all, but I want to like find the ones that I actually interesting why I have the ones the ones that you care about and the ones that yeah. you have sustained interest in that you can actually maintain the library yeah, and, once and, you build it and also I think that as far as technology goes it might not be Python so I'm waiting a little bit of what it's going to be like but I don't feel a pressure of actually doing something because I have a job I, that works yeah and internet points don't really translate to anything so <laughs> but so the interesting thing is that I, I found that it's surprising to me that if I can go for a year or two without doing anything, and then if I can do something and it, none of the points went away, <laughs> and, and that and that's good for me because I don't want to lose my ability to be able to say something important. You mean internet points is not frequent flyer miles? No, they're not like frequent flyer miles. I thought they were, and I was really worried about that for a long time. Um, but it turns out they're not, um, which is great. Because, you know, I had so much velocity for so long where I was like, new library, new library, new library, or new talk, going to all these conferences. And, and now I'm like, 
not doing that. And it's uh, it's good to take a break and take a breather and relax and make music and do other things. And and code is not my number one focus, but I, I want to. I'm starting to do it recreationally again. I just launched a new service called SayThanks.io. Where uh, it's it's really alpha, but it, the idea is, you know how you have those, like on your lecture project, you have all those buttons on the README? Huh? There would be a new button that would say, say thank you, and they click on it and they can write you a thank you letter. Which I think is really useful, because I like getting those emails when people say thank you for building stuff. So that's kind of the idea. I get to my emails. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, you can turn the emails off, and then this just goes to an inbox that you can check, you know? And you just log in with GitHub, and that's the idea. Um, but And so I, I want to foster that that idea of everyone sharing thankfulness for projects. Because to me, someone saying thank you in a meaningful way is more valuable than someone trying to send me money yeah, or something like that. But there's also, I think that... I think as programmers get older they kind of realize that there's a cap in how far they can go as a programmer, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then eventually... Yes, yes, there's a ceiling, and uh, you, once you reach it, you're like, I don't know what to do now. So I, I think that programmers eventually either become managers or they become like... like there's, there's, a, there's a career like path that, that goes in different directions. Um, See, for me, I decided that I want to stay a programmer. Yeah, but so... My career path, as far as like what I want to do after programming, might not even be computer related. I was, I'm, especially with um, like the moment you have children, you kind of think a little bit more about how the world is going to go, and especially in regards to yeah. 2016 has been a interesting year. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm honestly, I don't know why, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, so I'm, I'm. I'm quite seriously thinking about if politics might be something for me. Um, not not oh, politics, politics, yeah, but um, like at least becoming politically active to some degree and actually so, doing so something useful. Socially active, <laughs> socially active platforms. No, and no, stuff no, like not that. stuff like this. Like actually um, working out solutions for particular problems. I mean, it's different in the states because you don't like government much, um, but here in, here in <laughs> Europe, government plays a big role. Um, so actually, I working think, on the solutions kind of interests me. That's good. And do, do you find it rewarding to work for a U.S. company um, in, in in Europe? <clears throat> what do you mean by that? Well, I know you're working remotely, right? So I I, I don't know. I we have at Heroku a lot of uh, European employees, uh, and they they work for you know, the respective Salesforce branch yeah. that is in that country. But, uh, you know, they're working with the teams that are often based in the U.S. And is that something that you think other people should do? Like if they're looking for remote work in the in Europe, do you think that's an opportunity that maybe they haven't considered? Uh, I don't know. It's a hard question because I think for a lot of people, <clears throat> remote work doesn't matter which company it's for. Uh, it's something that... To consider in isolation like it doesn't matter if it's a u.s company if it's a company from the uk if you're not living in the office it's a different environment because yeah it's just this um, i don't know it's it's hard to answer i agree yeah you have to be a certain type of person and you have to 
it really structures your life. I notice whenever I visit San Francisco and I go to the office, my life is totally different. And I'm much, I have so many, I'm hanging out with friends and I'm doing stuff. And when I'm at home, I'm just like a hermit, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I want to foster less of that here. I, I think San Francisco is an immense bubble. And not in the sense that it's like exploding, but it's like a... Yeah. Uh, all the sudden, It's an echo chamber. Yeah, it's a, a humongous echo chamber. And... I like it in many ways, but I also find it very frustrating in many others. And if you spent more than six months there, I guess, then it's fine. But if you spent the majority of a year not in San Francisco, then... Yes. Um, it gives you a different perspective on what tech is and, and like how important it is in the, yeah. people's lives. Like I'm, I, it's so interesting to me to when I'm in San Francisco, go to any coffee shop and you just overhear people talking about Node.js and metrics and like all the time and it's like i'm the where i live i only know of like six people who do that stuff at all you know like in the whole town (laughs) so it's it's a much different experience and i really like being kind of unique where i live i i i enjoy that but it would be nice to have more people like me around i think that would be rewarding but i would never pay san francisco rates for housing that's absolutely ridiculous i don't care how much money i'm making you know, I've never paid three thousand dollars a month for a studio apartment. <laughs> yeah, it's impressive. I mean, I'd rather live in Zurich or Tokyo or something. Yeah, I don't know. I, but it's like housing is not even my issue with San Francisco. I think it's like uh, I know. I I would say that goes back to just a basic understanding of how life should be. For me, it's not how life works in San Francisco. Yeah, life is different there. So, yeah. like, when when a company says we are doing good in the world and the end result is Airbnb, um, <laughs> in my <laughs> mind, it does not connect. Um, so, so, for me, I feel like my life is profoundly impacted by open source. Do you feel the same way, where it's like you owe your happiness in life to open source in a way, yeah. or some part of <clears> it? Absolutely, because I mean, I'm from the middle of nowhere, so in the absence of open source, I don't know what I would have been doing with my life. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it already started down this path with open source, and then pretty much all of the connections that I made in life that lasted came through the open source community. Or is yeah. my work in yeah. this in some form? Um, yeah, all of my best friends in the world are Python people that I see two or three times a year, you know, at the most, or once a year even, and or once every three years, like you. <laughs> are you coming to PyCon this year? I don't know yet. Maybe. <clears throat> I, I really, I'm asking you to. I'd really like to see you. I should go. Um, I was last time, and I, I skipped both uh, Canada conferences. And you didn't go last year in Portland either. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you should you should come this year. It's good. Portland's good. And sent and you'd be at the Sentry booth. I come bother you after, and you come bother the Heroku booth. It'll be great. We'll we'll trade swag. We have uh, we have awesome socks. I uh, we have socks too. I'll trade socks. <laughs> yeah, we'll consider it. <clears throat> I should do more conferences again. Yeah, at least PyCon. PyCon's special. Like, that's when you get to see everybody, you know, all your friends. And we miss you. We miss you, Armin. <laughs> Everyone always talks about you at PyCon. 
<clears throat> yeah, that is usually a bad sign. <laughs> no, no, they say good things. Don't worry. <laughs> it's the Python free Unicode guy again. Uh, no, that's not who you are. You're the Flask guy. Yeah, but I mean, it's like it's impossible for open source not to heavily influence your life. Even just, <clears throat> even if you ignore friendships you make, it's um, just being exposed to people from all over the world changes your perspective. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the open source community is one of the most progressive communities in the world when it comes to like political correctness and stuff like that. And it's really interesting how much those values kind of instill who you who you are in a way uh, if you really embrace them, because uh, the community kind of drives what's acceptable for you to do within the community. And then, you know, you have to push those envelopes and those boundaries. Like for me, I wrote that bipolar blog post and I felt really safe doing that because of my open source connections. I did, if I didn't have my open source community, I probably would not have written that blog post. And that helped a lot of people. I get a lot of emails from people who are like, oh, I've had the same experience and it was like way worse and here's what happened and I'm a programmer too. And, you know, uh, th- I felt so relieved that someone who's achieved as much as you has struggles with this as well, you know, like uh, that, that really means a lot to me and it means a lot to other people. So I think that the open source community is literally one of the best groups of people on earth, um, at least the Python community. And that's kind of what makes me stick to Python. I don't have any desire. I love Python. I think it's API and it's design. I think this is also what got the, a little worse. This, I think it's also something that... <clears throat> It's the reason why I like the Rust community so much is because it's not just from a technical perspective an interesting programming language. It's also that the community is really, really welcoming. I mean, oh, is it really? Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. That's good. I've the only person I know other than you who does Rust is like I think Alex Gainer does Rust and um, Steve Klabnik. Yeah, does a lot of Rust, right? And he's a great guy. Not more, I think. I'm sure there's a lot of more people, but I, I stay pretty Python focused. No, I mean, so like I out of the I Python, really... I think quite a few now. Oh, uh, <clears throat> yeah. Like, hmm. So is there anything else you want to talk about? No. Since you're a co-host, you can you can lead to and ask me questions. No, I'm actually, yeah, I think. Oh, cool. This might be one of the shorter ones we've had. This is great. Usually they're around two hours, but this is good. I think, I think we covered about everything. Um... Is there any advice that you have to Python developers that, or just, you know, uh, people who want to get started in open source, people like me in 2010, who was like looking at Flask and like, I want to make, I want to make one of those. Do you have any advice for people like that? Who are like, I want to, I want to be well known in the community, or I want to build something that everyone uses, or I want to be, I want to have impact on the world around me and in this community that I love. Well, the problem is like I never planned for any of this to happen. So it's like, like how do you do this? How do you exp- how do you recommend someone something that is supposed to mirror what you did, but it was entirely based on accidents? So <laughs> for me, it was very much intentional, but it was also an accident. Like request was not the project I thought was going to take <laughs> off. That was just something I made for fun. You know, I had a lot of other projects I thought were going to take off, but none of them were requests. Yeah, see, but you can't plan for it. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, nope. in some aspect you can, because you can invest more time into it, and I say invest more time into it. Eventually, 
people realize that there's value in it, hopefully. It's not guaranteed. Yes. So I, I think what I mean, I can see what other people are doing around me. Well, you don't have to necessarily give you advice on how to achieve that, but like maybe mistakes that you made early no, on. I mean, like for I, me, I one of them is because it's really easy for me to say that it's important to delegate, or uh, it's really hard at first to let other people have commit bit on your project. For example, uh, I think that that's really important for for your own mental health to allow other people to merge pull requests and do tickets and stuff because you can't do that all yourself once you get once you start having users. And I always try to merge pull requests if I can um, on new projects and on projects that are established. I always try to reject pull requests because <laughs> <laughs> I because I want to you know I want to make as few changes as possible. So those are like so that's some of my advice. Yeah, I think uh, <clears throat> I think it makes sense. Uh, one thing I definitely notice is that, as far as popularity of project goes, or as far as like, <clears throat> if a goal is make something useful and then see other people use it, make it make a good license. Make sure there's a BSD or something yeah. license on it, which everybody can start using. And invest some Apache, time. Apache and, two is a good one as well. Yeah, but invest some time and effort into documentation and making it look like something that people want to look at. And and if there's anything I learned from from denied and from Flask, it says that having testimonials on your homepage <laughs> for your project is very important. People love testimonials. Because. Oh. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. I uh, because the best part is like that project denied. I made up the person that made it, um, so it, it didn't know, say it that great. it was my project, and I made a testimonial for that person, and it was like a negative testimonial. It was one that you could read very yeah. sarcastically. It wasn't. It wasn't even positive. And, and I like how someone people... called it out on Hacker News. Like obviously, all of those are positive feedbacks, but the only person who could leave a positive feedback was Armin. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, um, so for context, just so people know, Flask started out as a joke called Denied, and it was an April Fool's joke, and what it was, it came out on April Fool's Day, and what it was, was there was this, Sinatra was really popular in Ruby because it was a single file, it was Sinatra.rb, and you could just stick it in your project, and then you had routing, and you had all this cool stuff, and what Armin did was he took, he's like, well, I have all these great components for building a web framework. I'm just going to smack them together in a zip file and stick it into a Python string and make it one file. And it's going to be called denied. And it's and it's going to be a one file magical web framework for Python. And if you open up the file and look at it, it's literally a base 64 encoded zip file. <laughs> and it just, no one looked at the code. And it was like number one at Hacker News all day, and everyone thought it was real. And I worked at, the, I was doing uh, blogging for the Changelog, so I, I, I like tweeted about it as this new hot web framework, you know, for Python. And everyone was excited about it, and everyone was like, "Finally, someone built something cool for Python." And then you and then Armin went back, and he's like, "Okay, maybe I should make this real." And then he went back, and he made Flask. Uh, which was great because at the time I wanted to get into, I was doing PHP development for web and Python for everything else. And I wanted something that was approachable for for HTTP, for Python. And Django was not approachable for me because I like dealing with just HTTP requests, basically. 
Um, and the, I was going to do pylons at the time. It was the best alternative. Um, and I, I didn't really like that either. And then flask came out luckily and flask was exactly what I needed. And I've never, I've almost never used anything else since for any project. Uh, it's one of the best libraries out there for building web applications. And it it was all an accident. (laughs) (laughs) I love And is the, is the denied site still up? No, it's not. It's like one of those examples. Uh, I, I still have it around somewhere, but yeah, I get a German Aaron page when I go uh, there. The GitHub org is probably still there. I mean, the code was beautiful. I think it's called deny this deny ha- slash deny. Let's see if it's still there. Denied slash denied. Total a totally denied Python microframework for scaling enthusiasts. Yeah, and it, it was web scale. And it had a web it had a screencast. Yes. It had yeah, that was the cool thing. I had a, I had a Dutch French ma- uh, friend make a French fake person. Because the, the, the character that created the framework was a French guy. And you did at the top from deny import star. <laughs> database equals guestbook.txt it's so good oh it's beautiful although i have to i i do want you to know i fundamentally disagree with you on one thing in python and it's the way if you look are you there now at that uh-huh. repo go to guestbook.py yeah. and go to line 33 you mean the, the line continues the indentation for line continuations, I hate that. I absolutely hate that. You're I, you're the person that does it the most, and people copy you, and I hate it. This is when people indent to the opening paren on new lines for things that have a lot of arguments. I, I love. I think it's stupid. I love how and small I think it's little horrible. things spread through the community, and you can't stop it. Like, you can't stop. It's it's in the pep eight documentation is acceptable, and I'm like, no, no, stop this. <laughs> See, for me, I'd much rather you just have a new line and then use a normal tab, tab stop. Uh, I don't want there to be any any arbitrary number of spaces. I want it to be always in, in line with the regular amount of tabs. But no, you have alignment. Because we don't do alignment for assignments, so why would, you, why would you do alignment here? It doesn't make sense. I hate it. I hate it. And I've always hated that about your code, Armin. That's the only thing I don't like about your code style. I'm so sorry. I'm spreading this for the community. But you're not doing it on line 18. See, line 18 is what I like. Yeah, but the, you understand the rule. <clears throat> What's the rule? The rule is if the if the opening parentheses is the end of the line, then the next line is indented by four spaces. If there is text on the parentheses, the opening one, then it gets indented to the first character after it. There's logic behind this madness. I I don't I don't see the logic. It's like because to me I I think line eighteen if you're following your own style title should be underneath the open paren. Yeah, but then right. there's nothing in the first line. So if no, yeah, there is. There's percent s. No, but the opening parentheses is at the end of the line. I'm saying there can never be an open parentheses at the end of the line. Unless- oh oh, I see. I see what you're saying. Okay. I still see. Okay, 
I still disagree. I, I would just see. So for me, I would, I would, I always want there to be an open parenthesis at the end of the line. That's my logic. So I would do add note, open paren, carriage return, tab. And that's what I would do. Or honestly, I would just make it, I would just make it one line and make it go over the character limit. <laughs> yeah, I see you can have. But yeah. So, so that's my fundamental disagreement with you, but that's okay. And I also, uh, we should also thank Armin for um, the default theme for Sphinx is beautiful. It's called Alabaster, and it is based on my theme for requests. Uh, Armin made one for Flask, and it was beautiful. And I was like, I want that. And the license said you could take it and use it, but only if you change something. So I made it responsive so that it, you could just take your browser and make it tiny and work on the iPhone which it kind of worked before, but I made it work a lot better. And I made a few other tweaks. And so that was my my thing. And then everyone started using my thing for their documentation. And then Alabaster came out, which is a productionized version of it. And now it's the default syncs theme for all new Python projects. No, so it's stuff you looks see the same. everywhere. <laughs> but it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And uh, and every time I see a project that uses that, I think of you. I think of myself, and I think of you, and I'm like, look at the impact we've had on the world, and that makes me really happy. It's interesting and how it, and I, little I hope that this propagates from community to community. I think that that's something that you and I both share is that we've had a lot of very small little things, like like your indentation style, for example, that like propagate. Like for me, in a lot of my readmes now, I put the little caduceus in some of the headers, and people do that all the time now. And you know, and it's like no one notices but me that people copy me, but they do, and you notice it too, I'm sure. Yeah, I noticed some things. They used to be. They used to have I mean, I copied you. I copied you a lot. And people used to oh, copy yeah. those around. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, people really look at your code and they, they copy things from it. And uh, it's really fun to see those changes. And I, for the, the good example, I think how you and I work as a good team is I was really frustrated writing tests for Python 2 and 3 at the same time. So I just one day tweeted how pissed off I was that Python 3 didn't have a the U syntax for strings, for Unicode strings. And then Armin goes, and apparently that inspired you to go and write the whole pep and get it accepted to add the U back into three. Uh, and so that's that's the kind of impact I like to have, where it's like, I feel like I'm semi-responsible for making that change happen. And Armin's like really the one who's responsible because he did all the work. But, you know, we worked as a team, kind of-ish, right? It's funny when you have like small little things that, like the U path, where it's like, technically it's a tiny change. Like you had one character. But that was. But it has like three hundred messages on the the mailing list, right? A very upset Guido, I think. <laughs> I know from people that work at Dropbox, Guido hates me. <laughs> oh really? Huh. He likes me. He likes me. See, that's why I didn't write the pep. <laughs> well, I think in conclusion, I think that's a good good place to end the show. I want to thank Armin again for coming on and being our co-host today. And if anyone has anything to yell at him for, uh, they can contact him where? Uh, Twitter. Twitter, yeah. And it's, I don't know how to pronounce it. Mitsuhiku? Yeah. Or F- Facebook and, or Twitter. Yeah, Works. Facebook and Twitter. For conversations, better than email, which I already established. I suck at. Yeah. 
And do you still hang out on Freenode? Yeah, but um, rarely. You should you should enjoy the Positive Python channel. <laughs> but then more people it's, will it's, write me. It, it's the it's the anti David Kramer room because he always would come into Django Social and complain about things. So I made Py- Positive Python so David wouldn't wouldn't be in there. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. All right, done. All right, thank you again, and uh, okay, I'll talk to everyone later. Have a good one. Take care. Cool. We can hit stop now.